We obviously want to encourage great people to, to get into restaurants. And the only way we're going to do that, I think, is by having education, by having structure and having support around, A, what it takes to be successful in the industry and B, how you can do that, you know, without, without honestly having to work 90 or 100 hours a week. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. In Australia, most restaurants are family-run hubs of the community. Places where we gather to socialise, break bread and forget our woes. For those that grow up in family restaurants, their careers are often predestined to carry on the work of their parents. Others leave the fold for different vocations and some take the solid foundation built over their childhood and take on the world. Banjo Harris Plain is the co-founder of Grow Assembly and Good Pair Day. Banjo, how are you? I'm fantastic, Huck. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. You've had a pretty amazing career, which we can go into, but you know, it all sort of started in the early days with a family restaurant for you. Yeah, absolutely. I um, look. I feel very privileged in in retrospect to to look at my uh, childhood as it was kind of linked to a lot of fantastic food and wine. My Both my parents um, didn't come from families where, where food and wine was important, but through throughout their um, sort of young adult lives and as they were growing up, they certainly became more bon vivants, shall we say. <laughs> you know, they, they really loved food and wine and restaurants and it really became a part of their, their personal identity. Um, my mother trained as a chef. My dad uh, was a journalist and travelled all over the world, um, and they both developed a love for for delicious and interesting food and um, and mostly Australian wine, to be honest. And um, yeah, when I was quite little, they they bought their first restaurant. They bought a little um, a, a B and B and a restaurant in a South Australian country town called Robe. Uh, we moved there from Adelaide, um, and some of my earliest memories are uh, are of you know walking the hallways of that B and B, you know, being in the courtyard while breakfast was served, and um, it just kind of took off from there. They bought another restaurant in Adelaide after that, and we moved back to Adelaide. And yeah, food, food and wine's always been a, a really big part of my life, and it's it's really all thanks to them. Were there ever any moments when you were growing up when you thought that you needed to move away and not have a career in hospitality before that became your thing? <laughs> Look, it. it it kind of um, it kind of happened organically, I guess. I um, I worked in my parents' restaurant throughout high school. Um, you know, Friday, Saturday nights, I would do do shifts, either polishing glasses or you know helping out on the floor. Uh, some some Saturday mornings, I would go and help my dad do stock take in the cellar. Uh, and then after I finished university, I um, I got a really great offer from. Uh, one of my aunts who, who's also in the industry. Look, my, my whole family is really heavily connected to, to the restaurant industry. I've got two aunts who are, who are both um, really well-recognized chefs. And one of them, her name's Christine Manfield. Um, she was, uh, she'd been asked to head up a restaurant in London. And she said, look, why don't you come to London? Now that you've got your study out of the way, come and work here. It'll be an incredible experience. So, um, I'd spent pretty much my whole adult life up until that time in Adelaide. Um, so to have a, a job in a, you know, what was definitely going to be a busy restaurant 
across the world in London was was an eye opening experience, and that really set me on the path. I guess you know, being in London, um, in a in a vaunted restaurant you know we were getting a lot of press it was busy there was lots of stuff happening it was ultimately unsuccessful but you know at the time that I was there it was it was really busy and um you know that really opened my eyes to to food and wine and restaurants and and really set me on the path the food scene in Adelaide has um, evolved beautifully over the last decade or so. But take us back to that time when you were uh, at school and university and working in your parents' restaurant. What was the restaurant um, offerings like in Adelaide in those days? Um, look, I probably don't have a, a great memory of the, the industry as a whole back then because I wasn't as, as deeply committed to it. It was kind of, you know, for me, it was a job at the time. I liked hanging out, you know, because I knew all the people there and the restaurant was comfortable. It wasn't a wasn't a standard job. I think anyone who's worked for their parents kind of knows that <laughs> it's not the same environment as a, a traditional workplace. Um, but their restaurant was, was definitely a fine dining restaurant. It was well recognized at the time. Um, the... The food was, you know, that kind of mm, uh, famous Australian mid-90s Asian fusion kind of thing, even though if I said that to my parents now, they'd probably be angry with me um, <laughs> for describing it as such. But, um, yeah, look, the, the restaurant scene back then in Adelaide was probably um, limited compared to what's available now, but at the time it seemed quite wonderful. You know, I, I definitely have very fond memories of, of working in the restaurant there of the, of the environment, of the service of, you know, of everything that we did. I, I thought it was a wonderful introduction to, to the world of restaurants and fine dining. You went to university before diving into your career in London with Christine Manfield. What, what were you studying and was there thoughts to not go towards hospitality at all? I was one of those people. I did quite well at school, which was lucky. Um, because I had absolutely bugger all idea of what I wanted to do. So I'd applied for law and didn't quite do well enough to get into that. And so I just ended up doing international studies, um, which I kind of recall as basically an arts degree with a foreign language. So I, I, did, <laughs> I, I did French because I'd been quite good at French at school and I'd, um, I'd always dreamed of going to Paris. Um, and so I did a lot of humanities subjects. You know, I... I loved the arts and sort of history and um, I loved reading. I really, I really didn't have a clue. So I was doing that and kind of scraping along and, you know, reading lots of books and not turning in too many assignments. Um, and the, it, the world of hospitality drew me in because it, was a, uh, because it was a workplace, but tied to that was the world of wine. And like I said, I was, I was a bit of a geek. I was reading a lot. And so I was just reading all these books about wine as well. And it just seemed like this whole new world that encapsulated, you know, history, geography, different languages, culture, agriculture. You know, it was pretty, pretty huge and it was eye-opening. And I thought, wow, this, this all seems really, really exciting. So take us to London. You said it was a pretty eye-opening experience. Um, and then you ended up coming back to Australia. But what changed for you in London? Yeah, like I said, it was it was eye-opening. Um, the the pace of life was was completely different, obviously. But just being in this um, this huge restaurant, you know, hundred and twenty odd seats. There was a, a boutique hotel on the on the stories above. I think there were three or four rooms. Um, there was two bars. There was a function space, and I'd just never seen anything like it. You know, I was a twenty or twenty one year old kid who'd come from Adelaide, and I didn't really have a clue that 
restaurants like this existed. You know, I was, I was in the big smoke. And uh, obviously the wine scene in London was and still is one of the best in the world. You know, there's access to wines from, from every corner of the globe. And um, it's really, really quite special, you know, from, from wine, you know, humble wines from, you know, Australia and Chile and South Africa to, to the great wines of France and Italy, you know, the, you know, some of the most expensive and, and rare wines in the world. So uh, we had a pretty solid wine list and I was going to p- other places in London that had amazing wine lists and, you know, talking to people and just, you know, sheer osmosis. I was a sponge at that time, just sucking up as much as I could and uh, came back to Adelaide and, you know, had just spent basically two years working in a in a pretty solid restaurant and um thought oh yeah i could i could probably do this for a bit longer i you know until i until i figure out what really happens and then you know 20 years later here we are (laughs) (laughs) well you've worked at some pretty amazing restaurants uh in australia what's been the real pivotal moments for you uh through your career with the various restaurants you worked at um yeah well that was definitely the the genesis of it like we said in london um i I spent a little bit of time in Adelaide before moving to Sydney when I when I came back to Australia, um, and I just had some amazing experiences in Sydney. You know, working for for some people who are still heavily active in the in the restaurant industry in Sydney. Uh, my first job in Sydney was working at the Bentley Restaurant when it was still in Surrey Hills. Uh, Nick Hildebrandt was and still is the owner, but was a, a real inspiration to me. I think he's a bit of a, a pioneer in terms of the kinds of wine lists that he writes in this country and the kind of kinds of wines that he, he knows about and, and gets access to and, and then shows off to, to his customers. And um, he's, a, he's a quiet guy, but he's, you know, he's quietly inspirational as well. Um, I, worked, I worked for Maryvale briefly and... Franck Moreau is the the head of everything wine there, and he's also an incredible guy. You know, the first uh, Australian-based master sommelier. Uh, the master sommelier program is a global program, um, you know, accrediting sommeliers across the world, and he was the first person who lived in Australia to be to, to be awarded that, and he leads a, a huge team of sommeliers across that that giant company, um, and he's a, also a really, a really inspirational person. And I just felt, you know, I really felt a part of the um, the Sydney hospitality community almost as soon as I arrived there, and you know, from from Bentley to S, and then I worked at Key, and you know, there were just like massive wine programs. Restaurants were um, getting global attention. You know, obviously, restaurants like Rockpool and Tetsuya's had really put Sydney on the map, and um, you know, that was continued by the good work that Key did in the in the mid and late 2000s um and so it was really it was really an exciting time and there were lots of those you know the i guess the sort of i'd call them more casual fine dining places that were that were starting to evolve in sydney at that time it was just a a really exciting time to be there attica really uh, got the world's focus as well and it's been on the um, top 50 list um many times and you were a key um part of that success what was it like working with Ben Shuri and running that team and and living the ride of that success yeah it it really was a ride to be honest um you know that would that would be the the seminal job that I had in my in my hospitality career I would say um I um I was living in Sydney and I I wanted to take the next step in my career I'd had kind of junior management positions and I had been brought up in restaurants. I loved restaurants. I lived and breathed restaurants. You know, on my days off, I would eat in restaurants. When I was working, I was in restaurants. I had very clear ideas of how I, how I thought 
restaurants should be run, how wine lists should look, how service should look. You know, I was I was really developing. Um, I don't want to say I was developing a philosophy that sounds a bit pompous, but I had, had a really clear idea of how I thought a good restaurant should operate. And I'd taken a trip to Melbourne with a couple of friends just to just to go eating um, and one of the places that we went to was Attica and it really stood out for its lack of uh, pretension. Um, you know, it, it wasn't in the CBD, it wasn't big and flashy, but there was a lot of thought and a lot of care put into everything. And about six months after we ate there, um, a friend of mine in Melbourne said, hey, they're advertising for a restaurant manager. Um, do you think you'd be up for it? So I, I applied for the job and I got it. So I moved from Sydney to Melbourne Um in 2011 and Attica had um had been awarded the best restaurant in in Victoria in in the good food guide I think the previous year and we're really starting to make a run at as you said what would be a really a really long stretch of global acclaim um and when I got there it was a it was really interesting for me like I like I detailed I'd worked at these these big fancy restaurants in Sydney, Est and Key, and you know they're they're backed by by big money. You know, there's they're big organisations. They're serious restaurants. They've got HR teams and they've got you know structures and processes and things like that. And the restaurant that I came to in Melbourne, Attica, and this is not a um, this is not a negative comment by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it was a far more humble restaurant, and it really reminded me of some ways. Of working for my parents again because it was a it was a it was a small restaurant. Ben was one of the owners, and um, a, a doctor, a guy by the name of David Macora, he was the co-owner at the time, and uh, they just poured everything into it. They did everything themselves. You know, there was no big financial backer. They're out in Rip and Lee. You know, they're, they're not in a they're in a cool part of Melbourne, but they were just doing the absolute best they could. And it turns out that, that what they were doing was pretty awesome. So I, I came on board, restaurant manager and head sommelier, head of reservations, you know, head head cleaner, you know, a bit of everything. It was a, it was a small team, but a passionate team. And a lot of that passion stemmed from Ben himself. Um, I, think, I think most people listening to this will be familiar with Ben. He's eccentric and wild and passionate and, and lovely and caring and a little bit crazy. And, you know, a, a lot of the the success of that restaurant um, stems from his his work ethic and his passion. And so that really rubbed off on me. And, you know, I, I just ended up throwing myself into, into that job and um, trying to make this little humble restaurant in Rip and Lee as amazing as it could be. And when I look at how the restaurant was when I started there compared to how it was when I left, look, there were some, some massive changes. I definitely wasn't to thank for all of them but I was a part of it and I'm really proud of that and it was a really a really special time you know the restaurant was renovated we you know there was big turnovers of staff you know we got new staff and you know new serve uh new new systems in place we, we built a cellar we built a private dining room we we you know tripled the size of the wine list you know we built a garden out the back of the restaurant where people are now taken as part of their their dining experience there was there was crazy stuff happening and it was all it was all done by hand you know it was all done by, by blood, sweat, and tears. So it was pretty epic. Given the uh, sort of background that you had of some of those really big restaurants and then moving to Attica with the responsibility of creating this wine list with, with what Ben was doing, which was so um, forward-thinking culinary speaking in Australia, what, what was it like trying to pull together that wine list for you? Um, 
it kind of happened in in two parts. When I got there, I was pretty pretty headstrong. I guess I was like, "This is how it's going to be," and I'm going to do it like this. And I think Ben kind of let me have have my way for a little while, and then you know, over a period of I guess a year or eighteen months, it was kind of like, well. It can't just be this wine list that's, you know, stuff that I want to drink because, you know, that's cool and, and people like that, but it needs to fit with the, the culture of the restaurant. And look, we weren't too far apart, to be honest, so it wasn't a, a really big catastrophe, but there were um, there were changes that needed to be made. You know, the ethos of the restaurant was very um, local and sustainable. Uh, and for a long time, we had, you know, more imported wines than we had Australian wines. So we had to kind of bring the focus back to um, to some local wines and also just ensuring that, you know, basically as many producers on the wine list as possible were, were working sustainably or organically, which the majority were, to be honest, but just kind of just giving it a bit more focus. I think I kind of lost focus in that, that first 12 months just because there was so much going on and there was so much that I wanted to, to change and to make happen. But, um, yeah, look, I was lucky enough to be there for five years and, um, you know, that was a really, a really good, stretch of time and certainly gave gave us the opportunity to to put some really good things into place you've won many accolades and sommelier of the year um on numerous occasions um natural wines is something that has really come to the fore in the last decade in australia and there's always heated debate about natural wines in the wine community um tell us about putting a wine list together and and the sort of the emergence of natural wines and the, that sort of I know you've been part of those sort of debates um, on that are ongoing mm, yeah so um, when I was living in Sydney I was studying the the master sommelier certification and uh, some of the exams were taking place in London so I was traveling to London once a year to sit these fiendishly difficult exams and consequently failing these exams but outside of that I would um, go and drink at you know fantastic wine bars in in London and Paris and and go and visit um, you know different vineyards around Europe and the the wines that were being recommended by sommeliers overseas or or the vineyards that I had read about that we would then go and visit um, more often than not were, were small scale sustainable agriculture and the winemaking was very low intervention and, and the resultant wines were um, for me in the mid 2000s a real, a real breath of fresh air you know they were offering flavours and textures that I wasn't familiar with from my drinking history of, of Australian and, and classic European wine and so it seemed like you know, I'd spent, um, you know, five, six, seven years learning about the world of wine. And all of a sudden I was getting towards, you know, maybe the end or close to the end of my, my discovery. And all of a sudden a new, a new gateway opened up and there was all these new flavors and new stories to talk about and to discover. And so, you know, obviously that was insanely interesting and very, very exciting. So, um, you know, coming, coming back to Sydney after some of these adventures overseas, trying to find some of these wines proved, proved difficult, but there were obviously other people going on the same journey, other, other wine importers and other restaurant owners. And so these wines started um, arriving in Australia from overseas. And at the same time, winemakers started making these wines. And so I'd grown up in South Australia um, and I had a lot of friends in the wine industry in, in the Adelaide Hills and in, in the Barossa Valley and things like that. And the Adelaide Hills that, you know, today is known as a, I guess, a hotbed of, of minimal intervention wine. And so I, you know, it, it turned out that I 
I was good mates with, with a lot of these people, people like James Erskine and Anton von Klopper and Tom Shobrook and things like this, who, you know, these guys who are really at the forefront of the, the minimal intervention wine scene in Australia. Um, and so, you know, these wines were, were slowly being sold across Australia and I was, I was drinking them and I was enjoying them and, and then I was buying them and then I was selling them and talking about them and it just kind of, you know, it really picked up pace. It really, it really snowballed, I think, in the, in the late 2000s until, you know, we get to where we are today where it's, um, I don't even think it's a debate anymore. I mean, some people still maybe, maybe like to argue about it, but I, th- I think the, the, the natural wine scene is is so embedded in the world of wine. It's just a part of the part of the greater world of wine. You know, everyone everyone knows that there are wines that are made like this. Um, as the years go by, there are less and less minimal intervention wines that are faulty or off or you know horrible to drink. You know, because there definitely were some some pretty rough bottles getting around uh, a few years back. But that's that's less and less, and and now they're just uh, a part. You know, they're just a a thread in the fabric of, of the whole world of wine. And I think, I think that's utterly brilliant. You ended up leaving Attica and uh, with, with a group of other people opening Bar Liberty and Capitano. Tell us what it was, what it was like opening your own uh, restaurant, given the background that you'd had of your family's restaurant and such, such big restaurants that you'd been part of to create something a lot smaller and, and, and really a representation of where you were at. Yeah. So this is uh, this is going to be a common theme, but when I left Attica again, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. <laughs> I was still kind of still trying to figure out adult life, and you know, I'd been there for five years, and um, like I said, I still had that really clear idea of what I wanted a restaurant to be, how I wanted it to operate, and I felt like I had done a lot of stuff at Attica, um, but I was never going to be the owner of the restaurant, you know. So it kind of um, it kind of um, coincided with the the timing of Ben taking full ownership of the restaurant so he bought out the the other owner uh, and he became the sole owner full power to him um and I I kind of realized that um whilst there was still incredible opportunity to do amazing things at that restaurant it wouldn't be for me at least from a position of full power from full autonomy from full decision making and I guess I kind of wanted to be in that position. So I left Attica and about six months later reunited with um, a guy who had been the assistant restaurant manager at Attica for a while. His name's Michael Buschetta. And uh, we teamed up with two blokes who at the time owned a, basically a chicken shop on Smith Street called Rockwell and & Sons. And we said, we're going to do basically a wine bistro. You know, we're going to make a place that would be um, somewhere that we'd want to go on our days off. Um, it's going to be built around, um, I don't want to call it fine dining hospitality, but I want to call it like innate or true hospitality, you know, where it's it's really at the heart of, of everything that we do. We want the selection of drinks to be amazing, but we want it to be relaxed. You know, we want apprentice chefs to be able to come in there. We want, you know, anyone to be able to stop in, spend 50 bucks, have a great something to eat and glass of wine and not make it too unapproachable. Um, and so that was, uh, that was in 2016. Um, we opened, opened by Liberty, uh, on Johnson street in Fitzroy. Um, they just celebrated five years. Um, and I, I'm super proud of, of, of my time there. I think, um, 
I think we did what we set out to do, which is always always a big tick. You know, we created a, a casual wine focused hospitality venue that um, that made people happy. You know, we did we did some cool things. You know, we had we had interesting drinks and all the snacks were delicious. And you know, I think I think um, I think it's a good place. I think it's a really nice place. One of the uh, really interesting and amazing things that you've been involved with is Grow Assembly. Um, and uh, you've put on quite a few of them. Can you tell us about how that started and, and how important you believe it is for the hospitality sector? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in my last year at Attica, um, I, I'll, I'll just give you a bit of backstory. My last year at Attica, I was invited to speak at a conference in New York City called the Welcome Conference, which was um, put together by Will Gadara, who was formerly the co-owner of 11 Madison Park, and a guy called Anthony Rudolph, who was formerly the GM of Per Se. Uh, so two kind of front of house heavyweight titans in New York City, um, sort of longtime restaurant professionals, came together with the idea and said, we want to put on a hospitality conference that's not about rockstar chefs. We want it to be about front of house. So, you know, waiters, restaurant managers, HR department, sommeliers, bartenders, baristas. We want it to be about the front of house. And uh, they very kindly invited me to come to New York and, and talk about Attica and, and talk about hospitality. And I did that and it was an eye-opening moment um, to be in a room. There must have been a crowd of 500 people in this auditorium where I gave this this talk and, you know, there were – other huge names giving giving talks. I was very much down the bottom of the roster in terms of in terms of well known names. You know, there was the um, this guy called John Batiste who is a musician and um, he's he's put together film soundtracks and he was talking about his his journey. There was um, found the founder of Chipotle. You know, there was this guy called Danny Meyer who's probably the best known hospitality professional in all of North America. You know, there was some, some big, big names and it was really inspirational to listen to them talk, but also to see the reaction from all of the hospitality crowd in New York and people had flown from across America to come to this thing. Uh, and I came back to Australia and I was like, that was fucking amazing. You know, that was what I want to be a part of. That, in my mind, elevated the art and craft of hospitality to something truly professional. And without it being a negative, I think that's sometimes missing in people's hospitality journey. I know that a lot of people come to hospitality exactly as I did without really knowing where they wanted to get to or, or what they were doing. And I don't think that is... Um, you know, I don't think that makes anything less of the hospitality industry, your pathway to it. But I also think that there there should be some sort of uh, structure and architecture to give people um, the the professionalism and the tools that they need to really succeed in, in what can be a really challenging industry. And uh, I kind of looked around and I didn't really see a lot of that. I knew that I didn't have a lot of that when I was coming coming through working in hospitality, you know, I, like I said, I had a clear idea of how I wanted restaurants to work. But at the end of the day, you know, I knew nothing about finance. I knew, you know, bugger all about, I had no formal HR training or, you know, how to, how to manage people. Um, you know, I, it, it was all done on the fly through osmosis. You know, you work with people, hopefully you work with someone good and they teach you something. You take that and you go, go to the next venue and, and you learn something else. And then by the time you're in your mid thirties, you've cobbled together a collection of skills and you end up opening a restaurant, which is exactly my pathway. And I thought that maybe that there's, you know, 
some space there for additional resources and mentoring and help. So um, with friends put together this thing called Grow Assembly, um, which um, we wanted to be for the hospitality industry, by the hospitality industry. And we wanted to to focus on uh, a holistic view of, of hospitality. So not just hospitality, but any uh, sort of tangential industry that was also affected by that. So, you know, we had growers and makers and, and designers and producers, you know, that were all um, in some way linked to, to restaurants or hotels or bars or wine or food or, you know, farms or anything like that. And the idea was to basically put people in touch with, with people who had had some success for those people to, to share stories of their success, to hopefully inspire and educate. Um, and then for us to, to create a dialogue around, um, you know, how these people had become successful uh, and to give people a resource for, um, for future success, you know, so that they could learn about, you know, how to write a roster or, you know, how to, how to analyze a wine stock take sheet to, to assess profit and loss as it pertains to, to your beverage program in your restaurant or, you know, how to, how to manage hiring and firing, uh, you know, all of these skills, they're really, they're meta skills, you know, they apply across any industry, but people in hospitality, I think for years have, have worked long hours and haven't necessarily had the, uh, the opportunity to to skill up in these areas, and I think that's part of what what makes running a small or medium sized restaurant quite challenging. What impact has Grow Assembly had on you? Oh, uh, <laughs> almost almost too hard to um, to put into words, and just because of the the people that I've managed to to connect with and and, and speak to, and you know, you just realise that first of all the stuff that you're going through in a professional sense and often a personal sense as well, to be honest, is not, is not unique. And that doesn't make you feel bad. That makes you feel, you know, warm and surrounded. You know, the fact that other people are going through the same thing and you can share that experience and you can, um, you can help each other. And just hearing the, the inspiring stories of, of so many people uh, who are all passionate food, wine, restaurant professionals you know, hearing the, the the troubles that they've had, but then the, the successes that they've had as well. Um, you know, it's a um, it's a pretty inspiring thing to be a part of when you have people who have these amazing stories so freely giving this information and wanting to inspire and wanting to pass on this information. So, I um, yeah, I've I've loved every minute of it. Look, we're we're set up as a as a not for profit. It doesn't really make any money. We put on events, and um, we kind of we took a hiatus over COVID because you know everyone who was doing events kind of did that as well. And, and we're kind of at the start of the I guess the second phase of Grow Assembly now, and we're we're looking to to see what the future holds and how we can keep connecting with um, the hospitality industry around Australia in the coming years because it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting time. You're no longer in restaurants, but wine is at the centre of what you do. What is Good Pair Days? Yeah, so um, Good Pair Days is a business that I co-founded in 2016. Um, so um, I sort of just finishing up at Attica, about to about to open Bar Liberty, and um, I got a a message on LinkedIn from a guy who was a friend of 
someone who I went to school with a long time ago and he was like, Hey, I'm, uh, I'm an ex Macquarie banker and I want to start a wine business. And I was kind of like, Oh yeah. Okay, cool. And, uh, anyway, his name's Tom. He, he's my business partner and one of my close friends now. Um, I met with him and he had this pretty bold plan to, I guess, kind of revolutionize the way that wine is sold, uh, in Australia. And it stemmed from his, um, his, he doesn't have a wine background, but he's, he's interested in wine. And he had always experienced difficulty when trying to buy wine, um, primarily around the way that he would describe what he liked to whoever was trying to sell him wine and then the recommendations that they would make. Um, he had more, more misses than he had hits. He didn't understand the jargon and terminology of wine. When ordering wine in a restaurant, he was confused by, you know, regions and vintages and prices and, and things like this. And he couldn't kind of, he couldn't get his head around it. And I, when he laid out this plan at the time, you know, I, I had never thought about such things, but very quickly understood exactly what he was saying. And it made perfect sense because the wine industry is, um, is full of jargon and it is complex for an outsider and it is it is challenging and it is difficult and at the end of the day you know my my belief is that that it really shouldn't be because wine is a social a social thing a cultural thing you know everyone should be able to sit down and enjoy a glass of wine you know no matter where it comes from and they should be able to talk about you know why they enjoy it so um Tom's idea was to was to start an, an online wine business that had education as its key pillar and to um, I guess to translate the world of wine into into something social and fun that everyone could enjoy. So yeah, Good Pair Days is a is an online wine business. Um, I started doing it, you know, pretty much simultaneously to opening a restaurant, which for anyone listening is a bad idea trying to start two businesses at once. I was also starting a family. So, you know, many balls in the air. Um, but, um, when I decided to, to leave, um, at least for the time being to leave restaurants, um, I, I sold out of the, the two restaurants that I owned in Melbourne and, and made a commitment to, I guess I made a commitment to my family, but I also made a commitment to one business. You know, for a long time, I was trying to juggle multiple ideas and multiple businesses, and it seemed like a lot of fun, but, um, and it was a lot of fun, don't get me wrong, but it was also um, a challenging time, and it makes it hard to give to give 110% to one thing. So, so making that decision, um, the end of 2018, start of 2019, um, I, uh, I moved back to Adelaide, and I, I dedicated myself full-time to to good pair days which is which is now i'm really proud to say one of australia's leading online wine retailers um we have fantastic educational content uh we source wine from all around the world so i use my my wine experience to to import wines from across europe and, and south america and south africa so we offer wines um that you can't find anywhere else um and we also um i think we we sell it in a slightly different way to people. It's at its heart, it's the the, the skills of a sommelier, but um, but on an online platform. So we we make wine recommendations based on information that um, that a guest or customer will give to us when when they come to their site. We ask them questions about things that they like and don't like, and we use that to to generate wine recommendations for people. Your career has um, been about education and creating change in hospitality. 
in in many ways. The the industry has had the toughest year that it could possibly have. What what sort of sort of positive changes do you think can come out of um, what the industry's gone through? It's been a wild time, hasn't it? Um, I don't think anyone's seen anything like it in the, the hospitality industry, and hopefully we never will again. Um, but at the same time, you can you can only only look forward. You can only only try and try and find the positives in such a time. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it's it's been a it's been a reset. It's been a, a moment to sort of pause and to breathe and to see um, to see if a, a few minutes into the future, rather than just focusing on exactly what's in front of you at any given time. So I I hope and I believe that a lot of um, smart restaurant people will use this in the coming years to I guess reshape or reform how how restaurants are run um, you know we can probably hard hardly remember it now but you know pre all of all the COVID issues there were there were big rumblings about uh, about overwork and about you know how how restaurants were structured and how people were paid and you know that's still a, a big issue that's kind of bubbling away but you know there have been other things that have kind of taken taken our time and attention but hopefully moving forward um there can be there can be changes implemented into into restaurant life so that it really is um you know something that i always saw it as which is a viable career a professional career you know because it does take a lot of a lot of different skills to be a successful restaurant person um, it's not a, it's not an easy job. I don't think it's a, you know, there's that horrible kind of stereotype that restaurant work is only done by out of work actors or, or uni students. And that's, that's just crap. The people who are, who are successful in, in our industry are, are definitely not that they're, they're wine and, and food and hospitality professionals without a doubt. And, and it does take a lot of skill to do that. So, you know, we, we obviously want to encourage great people to to get into restaurants, and the only way we're going to do that, I think, is by having education, by having structure, and having support around um, a what it takes to be successful in the industry, and b how you can do that. You know, without without honestly having to work ninety or hundred hours a week. You know, there are always going to be people in the in the restaurant industry who do that, as long as they're the owners of the business and they're not they're not forcing that upon um, every every member of staff. You know, there's um, there's a lot to be said for for working hard, don't get me wrong, but um, it can't be it, it can't be a standard. It can't it can't be a norm. It has to be a choice. Um, and so, I think the the problems and the the disasters really that that have occurred over the last twelve months um, have hopefully given a time for for reflection and for pause. And, um, and the new wave the new wave is ahead hopefully <laughs> well and a part of that uh, grow assembly will be back on is there anything that you can tell us about in regards to what we could expect uh yeah um look we don't have any any dates or events confirmed that i can share with you at the moment i i guess the probably the only sort of important uh change that we're making is um that in continuation of our ethos of i guess wanting to support the hospitality industry um where we're in the process of setting up a i don't know if you call it a fund or a scholarship or something like that um that will be awarded annually to to someone who who lives and breathes hospitality in australia so a, a young hospitality professional um 
some sort of uh, cash and and mentoring reward that we'll be able to um, that we'll be able to offer on an annual basis to hopefully support people on their hospitality journey. Wow. Well, uh, that sounds amazing. And Banjo has been absolutely incredible to have you on Deep in the Weeds. Um, look forward to seeing uh, Grow Assembly and what you do with that um, in the future. Uh, please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks so much, Anthony. It's a, a real pleasure to, to be able to chat. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.